The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good morning. I direct your attention to John 7. Turn to John chapter 7. And I'm going to pick up in verse 25. John 7. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet, many of the people believed in him, they said, when the Christ appears. Will he do more signs than this man has done? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. So, here Jesus is. Remember the context. Jesus is teaching in the temple during the Feast of Booths. And one of the remarkable themes that runs through John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 is this reality of unbelief, of unbelief. And if you think about it, it's really quite staggering. If you were to see Jesus this morning in downtown Raleigh and he were to begin preaching, you would think that everybody would believe in him, that people would trust him. But what you see through the Gospels is actually the opposite, is Jesus is there in the temple. He is speaking openly, openly, but what is happening is is people are not believing in Him and not trusting in Him. It's the problem of unbelief. Why is that? Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Jesus came to this earth Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sinners. Jesus rose again from the dead. That good news is preached that all who believe in his name will receive forgiveness of sins. I mean, pretty much everybody's heard that message. But yet, why don't people believe? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why didn't people believe then? One of the great problems for why people don't believe is confusion about the truth. Confusion about the truth. People are confused about who Jesus is, 
and about the work he's done. My father-in-law has been a pastor now for 30 years down in South Carolina. He grew up in a large Roman Catholic family outside of Boston. And if you know Roman Catholicism, they teach that salvation is by faith in Christ and works. That that's the ground of your salvation. That's the Council of Trent, that's Vatican I, that's Vatican II, that's the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. My father-in-law heard that his entire life. His entire life he went to confession and penance and all of that. He's at Boston College, he's walking down the hall, and there's a, a sign on, on, on the wall that says, come to, to this class to learn how to share your faith. So he shows up one night, at this class to learn how to, to share his faith. It's a class put on by Campus Crusade for Christ. And he hears the truth, the true gospel, that salvation is a work of Christ alone. And all that is required is simple childlike faith in the truth of what Christ has already accomplished. And he heard that. They were presenting it as equipping you to go share your faith with somebody else, but he heard that in the light bulb went on in his head, and he understood the gospel, and he trusted Christ. But the problem was is that he didn't know the truth. He was confused about the truth. And the same was true of the Apostle Paul. I want to show you this right where we left off last week. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy. I want you to turn in the right all the way to 1 Timothy. Chapter 1. Verse 13, you remember Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Gamaliel was the, the great teacher of the Jews, and Paul was his brightest student. Paul was, uh, he had a lot of gray matter. He was a very brilliant individual. And look what Paul says about himself, verse 13. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul describes his fallen condition as ignorance, the ignorance of unbelief. What was he ignorant about? Well, he was ignorant about the law of God. He thought that he could earn God's favor by keeping the law. That's what the Pharisees taught. He thought that if he could be good enough, that God would accept him. That's what he thought. He thought that Christ was a false Messiah. He thought Christ was just, just another rabble raiser that had, that had come through Jerusalem. He didn't believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was act, acting in ignorance. He was confused about the truth. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus confronts him and, and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. He was confused about the truth. And, and Paul says there's a reason for that. Why are people confused about the truth in this world? I want you to turn now to the left to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says that there is a reason why people are confused about the truth. Look at verse 3. This is why you go out, you talk to people, 
and you talk to them about who Jesus is, 90% of the time you're going to get a wrong answer. This is why. Verse 3, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. What's a veil? It's something that goes over your eyes to prevent you from seeing what's in front of you. Paul says that the gospel, that the gospel, the good news, is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? What's the veil? Well, he explains it in verse 4. Look at verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, who's the God of this world? Satan. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Satan has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what he is saying here is that there is a spiritual blindness that Satan has enveloped around the mind of the unbeliever. That's why people are confused. When we're growing up, I went and visited my aunt and uncle out in El Paso, and we, we drove one day west into New Mexico to Carlsbad Caverns. And there's, I mean, there's really not much to do at Carlsbad except watch the bats fly, fly in and out. There's thousands and thousands of bats that, that fly out of the cave. But we went down, and we went 75 floors down into the, the cave. And we get down there, and I, I'm a little boy, turn out the lights, and it's pitch black. And in that moment when you're down there, you know, you're, you're playing games or you're, you know, you're, can I see my hand? No, I can't see my hand. And, and, you're, and you're feeling around. It's not that in that moment that my family was no longer there. They were there. They were standing right there with me. It's not that the guardrails were no longer there on the, on the side of the cave. They were there. I just couldn't see them. And that's what Paul says is the spiritual reality taking place in the mind of the unbeliever. It's not that the gospel isn't true. It's not that the gospel isn't good news, that God has so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son into the world to save sinners. It's not that that's not true. It's not that if you repent and believe in Him that you will have forgiveness of sins in His name. All of that's true. It's that the unbeliever is confused about the truth. They're confused. They don't know what the truth is. So if you turn back to the Gospel of John, turn back to John chapter 7. And I want you to write in your margin next to verses 25, 26, and 27, confusion. Confusion. Notice this confusion that the people have regarding the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. It says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Quick distinction. 
So far, we've seen that there is a crowd of people, a large crowd of people that Jesus has been addressing in the temple. Remember, this is one of Israel's three major feasts. The majority of these people would have come from all over the Roman Empire. These are Jews and God-fearers that have come from, from all over, and they've come into Jerusalem for the feast. And then you have the Jews, which are the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes that make, out the, make up the ruling class of the Jews. Now here, notice who John refers to in verse 25, the people of Jerusalem. These are residents of Jerusalem. So they've been there throughout the other Passovers that Jesus has been. They've been at, they've been at the other feasts. They would have been there when Jesus healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. These, these people have encountered Jesus' teaching before. They've encountered Jesus' miracles before. But notice this confusion about Jesus. They're hearing Jesus. They're seeing Jesus. But their question is, is what do the Jewish elites think? Notice this question. Is not this the man whom they, that's the, that's the Sanhedrin, isn't it, is this not him whom they seek to kill. So apparently they'd heard about this plot by the Sanhedrin to take out and eliminate Jesus. And here's their question then. Look at verse 26. They say, and here he is. So we heard that, that they want to kill him, but yet here he is. He's speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. So nobody is responding to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, that this is the anointed one? And you have to love and admire what Jesus is doing here. Jesus knows that people are after his life, but yet he goes into the temple and he boldly proclaims the truth. Openly. That's what, that's what they say. He's openly proclaiming the truth. David said, Psalm 49, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. And Jesus did not restrain his lips. He boldly declared the truth. And what's he teaching? Well, more than likely, he's teaching how he's the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. God led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness and then into the promised land. Christ has come to procure redemption for his people and lead them out of spiritual bondage. He's, he's explaining how he's the fulfillment of the feast. He's boldly telling them that he is from the Father, that he is the Son of God. Yet these people, what they care about is not what Jesus is saying. What do they care about? What the elites think. They, they don't know how to think for themselves. And the problem is, is the elites the, the Jewish ruling class is more blind than anybody else. Jesus called them what? Blind guides. He says, you're sepulchers. You're, you're filled with dead man's bones, Matthew 23. So, so, so they're the blind leading the blind, but yet these, the, 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 the people of Jerusalem can't think for themselves. Now look at verse 27. Here's, here's what they reason. They say, well, we, we can't believe that they think that Jesus is the Christ. They answer the question themselves negative, negatively. They say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So they knew that 
Jesus was from Nazareth. They, many of them didn't know that he was actually born in Bethlehem. Micah prophesied, Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But there was an extra biblical myth at the time that when the Messiah came, he would just appear just out of thin air like a ghost, and nobody would know the actual origin of the Messiah. That was, that was a myth that was taught. And so apparently this, this was a, a great stumbling block for people because people were always questioning this reality that they knew who Jesus was. Uh, John 6, 42, people said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say that he comes from heaven? Matthew 13, 55, they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas with us? I mean, we know this guy's family, so how, how can he be the Messiah? And the problem is, is what you might call Barney Fife reasoning. And that's where you have just enough information to be dangerous, right? They knew his family members, they knew of Mary, they knew of Joseph, but they didn't draw the conclusions that they were supposed to draw. They didn't investigate to see whether or not he was actually born in Bethlehem and had fulfilled the prophecy of Micah. They didn't understand that Isaiah said that the, that the Messiah would actually come out of Nazareth, so they failed to understand what the Scriptures actually said. Point blank, they were confused about Jesus. And everywhere you go, and everywhere you talk to people, people are going to be confused about Jesus and the gospel. Talk to so many people. Who do you think Jesus is? Well, Jesus, Jesus is a good man who taught us all to love one another and to accept everyone as they actually are. That's what Jesus taught. Have you heard that? That, that Jesus just accepts me as I am and all my sin and everything else and that I can live my life however, however I want. And Jesus teaches us to love one another. Well, yes, Jesus said, I came to, to save sinners. I came to, to eat and dine with, with those that are, that are the least. But he also said, go and sin no more. He also said that you will know them by their fruit. Or maybe you've heard that, yes, Jesus came. He wasn't the eternal Son of God, but He reached a level of God consciousness through meditation and spirituality, that He achieved the highest level of spirituality that we possibly could attain, and I'm trying to attain to that level of spirituality that I can become like God, like Jesus became like God. But what did Jesus claim? He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said in, in John chapter 5, my father has been working until now on the Sabbath, and I've been working. I'm God. I'm pre-temporal. I came into this world, but that wasn't my start date. I have been with the Father from all of eternity. Or how often have you heard that, yes, Jesus did His part for me to be saved, but I've got to do my part. 
yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but I need to clean up my life in order for me to go to heaven. Faith and works. You see, people are confused about Christ, and they're confused about the gospel. Everywhere you go, don't, more times than not, the, the matter is a matter of confusion. They simply don't know the truth. So what is needed is what is seen in verse 28. Look at verse 28 and write in the, the margin of your Bible, correction. Correction. What is needed to bring people from a state of confusion is correction. A voice of reason that pops the bubble of their confusion. Notice verse 28, Jesus proclaimed. So to all this confusion, all these people, you know, well, we, 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 we know where he comes from, and, and we're not supposed to know where the, where the, the Christ is going to come from, so it can't be him. Jesus pops the bubble. He yells. He proclaims. He's not just speaking in a, in a 12-inch voice. He is shouting into the confusion. And this is what he says. He, he gives this rebuke. He says, you know me? And you know where I come from? There should be a question mark there. He's, he's, he's asking in the form of a, of a rebuke. You think that you know me? In the words of Lee Corso, not so fast. Not so fast, because as a matter of fact, they hadn't a clue where Jesus was from. So Jesus is going to give this correction to their false information. And for salvation to happen, that is what is needed. There needs to be a correction to that false worldview that the person has. Remember Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. You need, to, you need to correct that. Paul, on the Damascus Road, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you kick against the goads? I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Paul, when he stands up in Athens, he says, look, I saw a statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you about the God who is there and has a name, the God who is. You need to know that there is a God in heaven and earth. Apollos in Ephesus, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So, for us to be saved, the fog of confusion must lift, and often what God uses is a voice of correction, a voice of correction. There's a young man named D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody's father died when he was a young boy, he had, I think, eight brothers and sisters, and his mom raised them to be Unitarians. Unitarians deny the deity of Christ. Seventeen years old, he goes to Boston to, to live with his aunt and uncle. They take him to church, and there was a Sunday school teacher there named Edward Kimball. And Edward Kimball took Moody aside and said, what you believe about Christ is wrong. He is God. He came on this mission because God loves you, and He came and died on a cross for your sins. And God used that Sunday school teacher, that correction, to lead him to faith in Christ. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife, Beth Ann. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher, was, was a, a preacher down in Wales, and he'd been there uh, preaching at this church for two or three years. And his wife, Beth Ann, she was a good person, but she wasn't saved. She wasn't a believer as a pastor's wife. She got on a bus one day, and one of the deacons at the church was on that bus. And he pulled her aside and he said, Bethan, your, your husband, his messages, they're just filled with the gospel. They're just filled with Christ and the atonement and God's love. And then he looked at her and he said, but my dear, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? She said she went home and she realized that she didn't know the Lord. She's just been going through the motions. It was that correction that God used to open her eyes to the truth. So friends, we can't be afraid of a little friction in evangelism. For someone to come to faith in Christ, that veil has to be lifted. That worldview has to be torn down. The, the false assumptions that they have to they, that they have of Christ have to be dispelled. And you're going to have to speak the truth into their life and tell them about who God is, that God is triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that God created the universe, that we're not just here by accident, that God put us here, that God has a law. Man has broken that law, and therefore man deserves death and judgment and hell. But God, in his love, sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to live for us and die for us. But because he was perfect, he rose from the dead three days later so that all who believe in his name have forgiveness of sins. You will have to speak that message into somebody's life and dispel the fog because only then can they believe. Look what Jesus says. Look what he says. He says, verse 28 in the middle, he, he, he dispels the fog. He said, I have not come of my own accord. I, I'm here on a mission from God. I'm under God's orders. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. Jesus came on a rescue mission from God. God sent him. Jesus said, I have, I'm not here on my own accord. This is a Trinitarian endeavor. And then look what he says. He who sent me is true, in him you do not know. What he's saying is, is, I don't care if you believe in my mission or not, but I know the character of God. God is true. Paul says in Romans 4, like, God be true and every man found a liar. It doesn't matter whether or not people receive the message. That doesn't negate the fact of the message, and it doesn't negate the truth of who God is. And Jesus says, the fact that you don't believe just is indicative of the fact that you don't know God, because God is true, and his mission is true, and he sent me into the world to save. 
If we are faithless, Paul says, 2 Timothy 2.13, he remains faithful. So Jesus' confidence in this moment, as, as people are detracting and people are shouting him down, people are saying that he's not the Christ, Jesus' confidence is in the character of God and in the authority of God in his mission. And friends, that's the boldness that's required on our part today in this world. When you go and proclaim Christ, you are not speaking on your own authority. Whose authority are you speaking with? God's. We are ambassadors of Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the ministry, is, is you're not going around with your own ideas, your own self-help program, your own 12-step method to a better life. You are going on behalf of God, on behalf of Christ, imploring people, be ye reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's the ministry. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Do you have a divine commission? Go ye into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's your commission. So when you go and you talk to your friend or your neighbor about Christ, it's under God's authority. It's not your authority. That, that's what Jesus is saying. One of the ways that he's able to speak with so much authority and so much boldness is not just because he knows that God sent him, but because he's experienced communion with God. I want you to write next to verse 29, communion communion. There's a clarity that comes from intimate knowledge of God. It's just when you know God, it makes things so much more clear for you in the world. Look what he says, verse 29. He says, I know him. I know him. That word know is the Greek word oida. It means a knowledge of understanding, a knowledge of experience. It's a knowledge of intimacy that he's talking about. He's saying, I have experienced this Trinitarian intimacy with the Father, that I've experienced this communion with the Father. He says, for I have come from Him. I've been with the Father. You see, it's one thing, it's one thing to know facts about someone. It's another thing to know that person. A lot of us just watching the news know the facts of Queen Elizabeth. Does anybody actually know her? I don't see any hands. That's the difference. A lot of people know facts about God, but that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about the experiential knowledge of God. And Jesus claimed to know God this way. Let me just give you a couple cross-references. John 8, 55, Jesus says, But you have not known him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. 
He says in John 17, 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that have sent me. To be truly saved, and I want you to listen very carefully here. To be a true Christian, you must know God. You must come face to face with the person of Christ and to know Him intimately. Not a ethereal knowledge, but an actual intimate knowledge of God, a knowledge of Christ. This is how Jesus defines eternal life, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Saving faith is knowing Christ and knowing the Father. And it's a package deal, and let me tell you why. It's because Jesus Christ is the only one who has revealed the Father to us truly. Jesus Christ is the only one who has come from the Father to this earth and revealed his character. That's John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus Christ has revealed the Father to us. And that's why all other religions are illegitimate. No other religion has the Son of God who knows the Father coming down to this world to reveal God to us. Every other religion is man trying to climb that ladder, that tower of Babel to God. Every other religion is some prophet who claimed that they had a revelation, probably a demon, and they did not know what they were talking about. None of them claimed to be the Son of God who came down from heaven. But in order for us to know God and for us to go to heaven, there has to be that connection. And that's what Jesus is saying is, I have been with God, I know Him, I came from Him, and He sent me. So let me ask you a question. How do you gain this experiential knowledge of God? Somebody ask you, how, how can I know God like that? How can I know Christ like that? You're saying that for me to be a true Christian, I have to know God? How does that even happen where I come face to face with Jesus? Well, Jesus says this, Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Listen, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Here's what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, for you to know God experientially and to know Christ experientially, that He must choose to reveal himself to you. That he has to lift the veil and shine the light in your eyes. And this is why we say that salvation is monergistic. That means one-handed. Salvation isn't us lifting our hand up to God and God pulling, pulling us up and reaching down. Salvation is God reaching down and pulling us out of the muck and the mire. 
It's, it's God shining the light into the darkness of our lives and removing that veil of death and, and Satan's snare. I want, you to, I want to show you this really quickly. I want you to turn back to 2 Corinthians 4, this passage we saw at the very beginning. So, we left off in verse 4, and Paul says, look, so Satan has blinded the mind of the unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. So what do we do? Well, he says, we proclaim the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, here's what God can do. He doesn't always do this, but if he choose to, chooses to do this, this is what God can do with the preaching of the gospel. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's God's creative work by his word, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, is that God removes the veil. God opens your eyes. The blindness of, the, of darkness dissipates, and now you see Christ, not just in, I know facts about him, but in an experiential way where you know him and you know in whom you have believed. Charles Wesley, in, in the hymn, And Can It Be, put it like this. He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's God opening your eyes to the truth so that you can believe and trust him. I want to read to you the account of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was one of the, the famous revival preachers of the Great Awakening. And, and this, is, this is how he was converted. He, he had been part of the Wesley's Holiness Club. He, was a, he, he knew the facts, okay? So he knew the facts. He, he, he knew so much about Christ and, and the Lord. He, he could read the Greek New Testament. Listen, he spent much of his time in reading the Greek New Testament and in prayer. He gained more clear, rational, and affecting views of his own sinfulness and saw how hopeless was the effort to remove the sense of guilt by a series of observances. He was trying to remove the guilt. He couldn't do it. He remained in this condition till, as he informs us, quote, one day, perceiving an, an uncommon drought and a noisome clamminess in my mouth, and using things to allay my thirst, but in vain, it was suggested to me that when Jesus Christ cried out, I thirst, his sufferings were near over. Upon this, I threw myself upon the bed, and I cried out, I thirst, I thirst. And soon after, I perceived my load to go off. A spirit of mourning was taken from me, and I knew what it was truly to rejoice in the Lord. At first after this, I could not avoid singing psalms wherever I was, but my joy became gradually more settled, and blessed be God has abode and increased in my soul, saving a few casual intermissions ever since, end quote. 
Some years afterwards, in reply to objections, he said, quote, my crying, I thirst, I thirst, was not to put myself upon a level with Jesus Christ. But when I said those words, I thirst, I thirst, my soul was in an agony. I thirsted for God's salvation. And listen to this. This is the experiential part. And a sense of divine love. I thirsted for a clear discovery of my pardon through Jesus Christ in the seal of the Spirit. I was at the same time enabled. Enabled by who? God. I was enabled to look up to and act faith upon the glorious Lord Jesus as dying for sinners and felt the blessed effects of it. You think Whitfield doubted his salvation? No. Because he'd experienced that. He'd met the Lord. That's the, do you see the difference? There's a confidence when you have met the Lord, when God has dealt with you, when you know God, when you've seen His providence, when you've confessed your sins, when the burden of guilt has been removed from your back. And somebody says, do you believe in God? I say, of course I do. I know God. I know Christ. I've experienced Him. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've communed with God. I know Him. I was with Him. He sent me. But that's the great question that we all have to ask, and no one can answer that question for you. Do you know the living God? Do you know Him? And I don't just mean Sunday school answers. Have you met the Lord? Maybe it wasn't a dramatic experience like the Apostle Paul, but you've come to the point in your heart where you know the Lord. Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. Do you know Him? And if not, cry out to God. Like Whitfield, I thirst for you. I long to know you. I believe. I trust you. Remove the burden of guilt. I repent of my sins. Trust in Him. God is true. Christ is true. He died to save sinners. Believe in Him and you will be saved. And you will know Him and you will know God. There is only one way to know God and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Next to verse 30, finally, I want you to write confounded, confounded. What's interesting is, is that the, the elite, the Jews, are doing everything they can to stop Jesus. They're trying to arrest Him. Look at verse 30. So, they were seeking to arrest Him. They're, they're striving to arrest Him. Zeteo, we've seen this word many times in this narrative. They, they are, they are, doing everything within their capacity to arrest Christ. But look at this. But no one laid a hand on him. Why does no one lay a hand on him? Because his hour had not yet come. What's that? Well, John's talking about the hour in which he was supposed to die. 
the God-appointed hour, that God had appointed that, that the Lord Jesus was, would die at the Passover six months later, and they're trying to crucify him or kill him at the Feast of Booths. So what, what John is saying is, is they didn't lay a hand on him because they couldn't thwart God's sovereign plan. When Jesus did, on the cro- did die on the cross, it was according to God's sovereign plan. Peter says, Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So they're trying to do that before the appointed time, and what God does is, is He thwarts their plan. It's not the hour in which He is to be crucified. You ever see one of those illusionists that has the three or the four cups, and there's a ball underneath one of them, and, and he's moving them around? He says, okay, pick which cup you think the ball's under. Are you ever going to guess the right cup unless the illusionist wants you to guess it? No, you're not. You're always going to pick the wrong cup because he's going to move the ball. That, that's what God does. You cannot thwart the sovereign plan of God. Proverbs 21, 31, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So God simply negates the plans of the Jews. They, they want to kill him. God doesn't allow that to happen. Now look at verse 31. Yet, contrary to, to all these, the derision of, of the Jerusalem crowd, the plans of the Jews to kill Jesus, yet many of the people believed in him. They believed. Some did. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? For the first time in this text, in this chapter, someone thinks logically for the first time. These things are written The signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in Him might have life in His name. For the first time, somebody puts two and two together and say, look, He's doing these signs. What do the signs mean? Well, the signs must mean that He's the Son of God because would anybody do more signs than this man? No, they would not. So they deduce, by God the Holy Spirit's help, the veil is lifted from their heart, and they deduce that He is the Messiah the Son of God, and they believe. That right there is the most important thing that could ever happen to you. That right there is the most important thing that you believe. So believe, believe, proclaim the message. Has God done this work in your life? Do you know Him? Do you understand the truth of the gospel? Do you understand his death for sinners, his resurrection? Do you understand the truth? Have you believed and come to know him? That, the answer to that question is the difference between heaven and hell. All of eternity depends upon it. Don't leave here today without knowing where you stand with God. If there's any doubt in your mind, and you're thinking, well, maybe maybe I don't know him. If that's you, come talk to me immediately after the service. I'll be right here. You must get this right. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Heavenly Father, we...
thank you for the, the correction that you give in the midst of the confusion, that you teach us who you are, that you are with, with the Father, that you are God of very God, that you have been sent on a rescue mission into this world to save sinners, and that this knowledge that you give us is, is not just a theoretical knowledge, but a knowledge of knowing you and knowing God so that we can have this certainty in this life. We can have certainty that we are saved because of your promises and because we actually know you and we've experienced the communion and the fellowship that you give us in Christ. We thank you for these truths. We pray, Lord, that we would be bold to declare them. And I do pray, Lord, if there is somebody here today that has been walking in darkness, that has been walking in confusion, that the veil would lift and the light of Christ would be shown into their heart and that they would see God for the first time and truly believe and be saved. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.